Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Monday, February 22nd. We begin with a look at the issue of connectivity in remote areas in our country. We speak with a professor of electrical and computer engineering about the tech challenges facing remote regions and how to remedy the problem. Double masking to battle COVID-19 has been in the news a lot lately, but just how effective is the practice? We get some answers from Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. Today is a day when new federal guidelines begin for international travelers arriving in Canada. We get details on the process from Global Calgary reporter Sarah Offen. And finally, we look at new types of therapy aimed at helping healthcare workers struggling during the pandemic. We learn about trauma-informed yoga in our continuing health series focusing on mental health. 609 on the morning news. The COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted society's growing dependency on technology and the Internet And at the same time, remote communities struggle to stay connected to the rest of the country. We're joined now by Catherine Rosenberg to discuss what uh, big tech companies are doing and what they can do to help rural areas. Good morning to you, Professor. Good morning. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for taking the time with us. Uh, Just, It might be hard for us to wrap our head around this being an issue when you live in a a city the size of Calgary that, you know, having access to to Internet, uh, bottom line, would be, uh, you know, something that would be an issue in 2021. How big of an issue is this across our nation? Oh, it's a huge issue. First, it's an issue for rural Canada where they get uh, very bad service compared to what we get in urban areas. But uh, it's even worse for remote northern communities because those communities can only be accessed through satellite and satellite is known to be uh, very limited in terms of bandwidth and hence in terms of quality of experience. And Professor, let's talk about why people nowadays really need to be connected to the Internet. I mean, you know, obviously they don't have the, the systems in place for it, but what's so? why is it such an important thing right now? Well, uh, it's important because the rest of the world is connected and then uh, you don't have access to information, you don't have access to the same kind of education, you don't have access to the same kind of work. So uh, I think the, having a good internet connection is a, is a birthright by now. And uh, I think it is recognized by the UN as such. And uh, we have to do better to uh, improve connectivity for our remote communities and, of course, also our rural communities. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about this because it seems like to me the technology, that's a big business and those are the big companies that we hear about and our cell phone providers, if you will, our internet providers. Uh, but, you know, it has to be worth their while. Is this a case of just not having the customer base to make it worth their while to set up shop in these areas? Absolutely, absolutely. I think you can't see it as a business uh, as a business case because otherwise we know the answer. There is no business case to put the infrastructure in those communities. You have to think of it as, a, uh, as something you do for society, as a right that uh, people have to uh, uh, internet connectivity and then you have to do it. And also the, the point is the service provider, the internet service providers cannot do it by themselves. And that's uh, what we were trying to argue is that uh, the Internet service providers are limited in what they can do, uh, especially in today's Internet where the content providers have uh, taken control. 
it is something that we hear from the Canadian government. It's something that, you know, we've heard from both parties, really, saying that it is a necessity, it needs to be done, and yet still there is, you know, a big gap there, whether it's for education, you know, medical access. We're talking about that, how you, through this pandemic, you can go online and talk to a doctor. Well, no internet, no ability to do that, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, that's why we have to think differently. So um, I, I think we should also separate the digital, digital divide in rural areas to what I call the deep digital divide for remote northern community. And for those remote northern community, what I'm, I, I believe is that the content providers like uh, YouTube, uh, Facebook, and uh, Google, and uh, Netflix, and so on, have to start thinking and helping in a much more proactive way. And I'm comfortable saying that because I have seen that they have done, they have done things differently in Africa. If they can do things differently in Africa, why can't they do things differently for remote northern communities? Let's talk about that as far as, you know, the technology itself, because a lot of people out there would say, well, you know, you can get satellite Internet. Uh, why is that not as effective? And Because you would think that the satellite, you know, if people have satellite TV in, in their homes in the major cities, it works very well. But why is it an issue yes. when it comes to Internet? <laughs> okay, so that becomes a little bit technical. It's uh, satellite first is limited in bandwidth and it's very expensive. But also it's because uh, when you do TV, you do broadcast. So you are sending data towards the home. But when you do internet, you are going to have a closed loop. You are going to send data to the home, but the home is also going to send, uh, to send data to, uh, to the internet. And this is this closed loop that is difficult to do uh, on satellite because the latency, the round trip delay is about 250 milliseconds, which is huge. And most of the protocols don't work well when there is a satellite in the loop. So what's the answer, Professor? What needs to be done, in your opinion? <laughs> well, okay, so again, for those deep, uh, for those remote northern communities, I think what we should do first is to recognize we have a problem, to uh, be uh, ready to treat them differently. And that, I mean, the content providers should acknowledge the fact that they need to do things differently. For example, and that seems very easy to do, but it's not, maybe not sending them a lot of ad advertisement and rich media that they don't ask for. Right? Whenever you read a, a, news, a newspaper online, you are receiving a lot of ads, and those ads consume a lot of bandwidth. And this bandwidth is badly used, especially that most of the time they are advertising things that are not going to be useful to those remote northern communities. So we have to do things differently in terms of controlling the content we send to those communities. And also we have to acknowledge that what they do, which, is, which I call deep encryption, which is encrypting not only the data to the user, but also the, the, protocol, the, the protocol data, um, is not the right thing to do because the Internet service provider are basically blind. Because the, 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 the protocol data is encrypted, the Internet service provider cannot control the, the, the traffic and decide which is the useful traffic to send to those communities. So I think altogether, everyone, there are many stakeholders that should work together to make sure that the remote northern communities get better Internet access. And it is not only a problem for the government and for the Internet service provider.
I mean, what role, if any, and I mean, I'm the last person to, to say the government should be involved in anything. I think less government, uh, the better, particularly when it comes to something like this. It doesn't affect everybody. So you'll have some people out there saying we shouldn't have to pay higher taxes. But should the government step in and legislate something to, to ensure that uh, these other companies are paying up? I think uh, I, I would prefer if they have if they don't have to, but uh, if uh, and some of the companies, as I said, will do it willingly because they they understand that it is bad uh, optics not to help those uh, northern communities. But otherwise, uh, yes, maybe some uh, some policies are going to be needed. Should free internet access be a basic human right? That's the question. Thanks so much for joining us, Professor. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Bye-bye. That is Professor Catherine Rosenberg, a professor of electrical and computer engineering at the University of Waterloo. In the meantime, though, it is time on a Monday to check in with our Dr. J, Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. Good morning, Dr. J. Good morning. Hey, I know this is uh, something that's sort of been controversial over the past month or so. This came out, but now some more research that shows perhaps double masking through this coronavirus and with the new variants coming in that it may be a good idea to wear two masks. It may be. (laughs) So number one, wear a mask. It's still critical. Right. And perhaps even more critical than than anything else is actually keeping it on. I see a big mistake. It's not that people are, you know, have a single, double, triple mask. It's that they're constantly pulling them down when they feel they don't need them. Right. I'm in a setting where I'm sitting and nobody's around me. I pull my mask right off. uh, And then somebody comes close to me. I, I quickly fumble and put it back on. And it's not, you know, not perfectly positioned, etc. Keep your mask on. Just put your mask on. Keep it on. Get used to that thing on your face. That's the most critical piece more than actually the mask itself, probably. Now, when it comes to masks, yeah. there is a pecking order. And we've known this from the start. Yeah. That there is an N95 mask, which... Uh, is a very particular mask, and it's the most uh, the highest filtration mask. Then there have uh, there are all the surgical masks, uh, which are generally uh, two ply, so they're almost like wearing a double mask. Uh, and then there's just made up masks of fabric, whether you make them at home or you buy them, but you know the more fashionable uh, fabric masks. And of those, they're the least effective. And a double masking with something like that probably makes the most sense out of all. Because a true surgical mask or an N95 really shouldn't need a lot of double masking if it fits well. Okay, so let's talk, when we say double masking and you hear that high percentage rate of being effective, would this be, Dr. J, for everyday use? Like if I'm running into the grocery store to pick up a steak? Or is this in different situations where you're going to be in close proximity with people? Yeah, I mean, I guess you could make a distinction between the two. Although I, I would, I would say if you can get a double mask system that fits really well, that's very comfortable, and that you know doesn't seem to bother your breathing, etc., I would wear it all the time. I wouldn't uh, mix and match like that becomes your mask because it fits so well. Uh, just me personally, there, there are three different companies making surgical masks. Uh, two of them don't fit me very well. Mm-hmm. Like one, every time I open my mouth, it pulls down off my nose. It's it's a great mask, but it's useless for me personally. It just doesn't fit for some reason. And there's one that just fits absolutely perfect. So, you know, it has a nose piece of metal around the nose. And if I can get that all perfectly uh, formed to my face, that mask can stay on. And I'll wear it everywhere publicly uh, when I'm working. 
and no matter what, because it just fits so well and it works so well. And I think that's the key is to, you know, try different things, find that fit that's, uh, that's really good, especially around the nose and especially around the sides. And one that where you open your mouth, it doesn't pull off your nose, right? right? <laughs> Again, everyone always jokes about that. The person with the mask on who their nose is completely <laughs> oh, yeah. open. Mm-hmm. And it's that mask is absolutely useless to them uh, in many ways. And if the their nose is completely exposed, right? Yeah. Yeah. So again, don't do that. So, so these fitters um, is a new thing, right? This uh, sort of framework that fits over the mask and holds it tight to your face. Um, I haven't seen a lot of them at all. Uh, but again, if you have a funny shaped face that masks don't fit, maybe that's the thing for you. Not a funny face, but a funny shaped face. <laughs> yeah. what, right? Well, it could be funny face yeah. and a funny shape also. But, <laughs> all of um, the above. But yeah, where it just doesn't fit. And, yeah. and you know, what? It's one size doesn't fit all mm-hmm. here when we talk about masks. So very true. Thank you, Dr. J. Appreciate it. Okay, you betcha. That is Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. 819 now, and a mandatory three-day hotel quarantine for most travellers landing at Canadian airports comes into effect today, along with some measures to prevent variants from entering our country as well. With details, we're joined this morning by global reporter Sarah Offen. Morning, Sarah. Good morning, Sarah. Thanks for joining us. So, okay, we know the locations, we know the costs. Can you break it down for us? Yeah, so essentially this is going to be affecting all returning international air travelers. They now have to go uh, through these mandatory stopovers at these hotels. So yes, we have the Marriott here at Calgary International Airport, uh, as well as a Claim Hotel, which is just north of uh, the Calgary International Airport. Only four, ho- I mean, four um, airports that are actually accepting international travelers. So there are 18 hotels that are now part of this uh, quarantine program right across um, the country. Uh, so, I mean, there's a lot of hoops that you're having to jump through. A negative test 72 hours before you fly, another test when you arrive, then you wait three days in a hotel, you've still got your 14-day self-quarantine that has to go on. Um, so this is this is a tricky do. And, and the idea, of course, is to discourage non-essential travel, uh, to get ahead of the new virus variant. But there are some questions that we're hearing from travelers just in terms of what is non-essential travel. Um, you know, there's been scrutiny from those we've been speaking with, forced to travel for families emergencies and there are very few exemptions um, for those that are traveling to not have to participate in this this hotel quarantine program which costs here in Calgary about $1,300 so this is no small feat we've also been talking with somebody who's over in the UK uh, this morning they were telling us you know that that they're they're on a visa student visa which is now expiring they've applied for a number of extensions but you know they've been over there for a year and a half now so pre-pandemic they're trying to get back home Mm -hmm. and now they have these incredible costs of not only having to quarantine in these hotels but also having to uh, stay in an airbnb so that they can quarantine away from their family when they get back and and that's tough to do uh, for a lot of people especially students Sarah, what do we know as far as the process? Is this something that I have to book myself if I'm returning as an international traveler? Or do I get off the plane and I'm, you know, pointed in the direction of which hotel that I've been, you know, uh, penciled in for? 
yeah, so you have to make the arrangements before you leave. You have to have them in place, and you have to do it through a federal booking app. So you can't call the Marriott and say, hey, book me a room. I need to stay in quarantine. <laughs> you need to call the federal government. They have a, a booking line for this, and then they'll go through a number of steps to make sure that you have uh, not only your quarantine hotel, but you have all of um, the things in place, including, you know, if you need a shuttle that goes from, from that um uh, from the airport to your hotel, um, that you either have a vehicle that's left for you or that you have one of their designated vehicles to take you to that hotel. So there's a lot of um, things that are complicated in this. But essentially what we've been hearing from people is when they've been trying to call this booking line, they've been experiencing as much as a five-hour wait in recent days. So a lot of people um, feeling really frustrated by this and obviously not happy about the additional expense either. And Sarah, just quickly to break it down, when someone, someone if you're coming back to Canada, Canada or into Canada. So you've got to take your test. You have a negative test. You arrive. You still have to do that hospital stay until you get your second negative test, correct? Yeah, that's right. So you're going to have to stay at the hotel for at least three days until you get that second negative test that you took as soon as you landed. So that's in addition to that test that you got 72 hours uh, before you or as much as 72 hours before you flew. So uh, once you get that uh, second negative test when you arrive, then you can go into your quarantine back home, but you still have to pay for that that three-day stay at the uh, quarantine hotel mm-hmm. regardless. So it's still going to be about a $1,300 or sorry, yeah, $1, bill no matter what. Sarah, thanks for the update. You're welcome. That is Global Calgary reporter Sarah Offen. 710 and first responders work tirelessly now more than ever, of course, with the pandemic underway and continuing uh, with the mental strain that comes with that job. Many of them looking at new forms of therapy to try and deal with the mental toll. Reporter Randy Jacobs reports. Self-care in a paramilitary culture is simply not taught. Matt Johnson is a mental health professional, a professional firefighter, and CEO of First Responder Health Services. And by paramilitary culture, really what I'm speaking about is a stoic workplace where there's a real narrow range of emotions that are are acceptable. Emotional vulnerability is something that you will rarely see in those workplace cultures. And it was his first-hand experience with over 10 years of being on the front lines as a firefighter that had him re-examining that culture. We do see this as a, a, a national crisis. The recent data suggests that almost half of public safety struggle with symptoms consistent with one or more psychological disorder. But before taking a hard look at the culture at large, he had to check in and see what he was doing in his own life in response to the stress of being on the front lines. And that's where he discovered trauma-informed yoga therapy as a modality that could really help him. The 3,000 calls I've gone to and also just the sleep debt that you incur uh, as a shift worker that makes trauma-informed yoga kind of universally needed. So as you're ready, come into a comfortable seated place. What trauma-informed yoga allowed me to do is kind of be a little bit more introspective in terms of the things that kind of prickled me, I guess you could say, you know, in terms of my mind and to entice me to look a little bit deeper. We might pause here for a few moments together, practicing deep inhales and long exhales. Nicole Marcia is one of Canada's leading yoga therapists and trainers with a master's degree in yoga therapy. 
Through Matt Johnson's organization, First Responder Health Services, Nicole has been able to navigate that culture of stoicism to help first responders through trauma-informed yoga therapy to rely on their own resiliency for healing. It's an opportunity to educate them a little bit about how to use their bodies and their breath as a resource for self-regulation. That might look like self-regulating on the job. It might look like regulating in the context of a relationship with a loved one. Trauma-informed yoga therapy through First Responder Health Services allows these high-functioning individuals to both reach out for help and participate in their own well-being without stigmatization. So it really sees um, the client or the student as already having everything that they need, not only in order to do their job effectively, but also in order to engage in, you know, the relationships that matter to them. And of course, for many a long-term first responder, that first key relationship they need to develop is with themselves. Where my advocacy lies with trauma-informed yoga is in trying to hard target people that are five to ten years from retirement because the paramilitary identity has a way of completely cocooning your personal identity to the point where your personal and and professional identity becomes fused and so there's a lot of hesitancy in that age group about what we're what they're going to do beyond the fire service fortunately breath by breath the culture is changing thanks to groups like first responder health services and people like nicole marcia and matt johnson i'm you know usually doing yoga um, as part of my physical wellness routine on duty if if we have a quieter day at the hall and that's something that i would have never considered doing seven or eight years ago and i think that those type of changes in in regular workplace routine really uh, add permission giving to those stoic people that might go, maybe I should try yoga. Okay, maybe I should go to see a therapist. I get my teeth checked twice a year. Why wouldn't I get my head checked once a year? For the 2021 Health Series, I'm Randy Jacobs. With leading results, no wait list, and no financial barriers, Calgary Counseling Center helps you develop the skills you need to thrive.